Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. Are you a make it happen type of person? You're going to fix it. You're going to make it happen. You're going to power through. And besides resilience, Karen talks a lot about it. Yeah, I get it. We're going to be talking about making it happen or surrender with my guest today, Stacia Ruskovich. And She is part of the series that I'm doing where I'm brave women and I'm interviewing brave women to share their stories and insights about what they've gone through. And I am always fascinated by people's stories because it's the window of possibility. How do people fall down and get back up? How do people dial up courage? How do people get through difficult things? And in Stacia, she's going to be talking about her husband and how they had a life-changing diagnosis and what she went through to be where she is today, where her family is today and going through that. So Stacia, before we go into the interview, she is an entrepreneur and she owns a hair salon and has been doing this for over 30 years. And Her husband was also her business partner and her work colleague. And then they had this diagnosis that changed everything. So I will let you enjoy the conversation, the interview that I have with her, and I will circle back afterwards. Stacia, hello and welcome to my show. Thank you. So I wanted to talk with you because you have this interesting, you have, well, many interesting stories of your life that I found fascinating One of the things that I talk a lot about on the show and over the years has been, you know, when we can get the windows, like when we can sit here and hear other people's stories, it can give us insights and nuggets that we can then apply to our own life. Mm -hmm. And so I call it the windows of possibility. And one of the things that really resonated with me, with you, when I was talking with you before the show was about this idea that, you know, like we're driven women, right? We have this can do, we can figure it out. We're going to overcome. (laughs) (laughs) And damn it, we're going to make it happen. (laughs) We may sacrifice ourselves in the long term, but we're going to make it happen. So before we go into your story about your husband, like culturally, do you find that the culture kind of feeds that message to you? Like, because I think about, oh, you know, like grit and having tenacity and working really hard gets really rewarded in our society. It's like, oh, here's your way to prove your worthiness. Did that maybe possibly fuel you in addition to the, you know, other lessons we've had in life? Absolutely. I think my whole life I have been trying to prove myself to be better and bigger and stronger that I may feel at that moment, but I'm always trying to project that kind of image. It became a survival mechanism, I think, for me to, if something went askew or awry, I would just say, oh, I'm just going to work harder, push harder, do more, fix it, make it happen. That was definitely the way that I operated for a long time. And I've had a lot of experiences in my life that you think would have shook me up and made me have to address this earlier, but I think the really 
interesting moment for me was when I realized that I could not fix something that was happening to my husband who I love so much and I could not make a change in what was happening to him. Do you mind sharing that story of what happened to him? And Well, my husband, his name's Rich and he is an incredibly talented guy. And we used to work together as hairdressers at my salon and it was our salon at the time. And he came to me and he said, do I have something under my contact lens? And I said, I don't think so. And I was poking around in there and he said, something's going on with one of my eyes. So we headed over to a block away to the eye doctor and they started looking around and a whole evening of terrible things ensued where we went from one doctor to the emergency room to hear them there. And at about midnight that night, we learned that he was going to be legally blind in five years. And I remember the first doctor saying that, and I looked at him and I said, no, he has to be able to see. You have to fix this. We just, you have to fix this. <laughs> And the doctor's saying, uh, Stacia, everybody has to be able to see he's going blind. It was this fight or flight feeling where I was just driven to find the right doctor, find the right expert, ask everybody we knew that somehow if I willed it, this would not be true because I was going to find the fixer. And I definitely got faced with the reality of his situation about two years into it because my husband became suicidal. And I had a really powerful experience where I looked at this person, this man that I love so much, and I realized that he didn't want to live anymore. I could see it in his eyes. And I had the strange feeling that I almost wanted to let him do it because I didn't want him to live in that much pain. And then I kind of reeled myself back and realized that if I cannot fix this and I'm trying to jump to the end where all this is better and fixed, who is going to hold his hand and walk through this trauma with him? And that if I didn't do that, he may not make it. And I had to consciously surrender, I guess is a perfect word, to the moment. And I realized that I had to change what I was doing because he may not survive it. And that was a really powerful moment. And it reminded me of many other times where I've given in to the situation things that I cannot change, things that traumas that have happened in the past. But I realized it in a very different way that this other person, not just me, but this other person could be majorly affected by how I was handling it. And I realized that I had to be in this moment and he needed my support to go through it, not over it or under it or around it, but through it. So how did you be in the moment? That's a really good question. I think it was just desperation 
and I was watering the garden and I was, he was standing 10 feet from me. And I just had this absolute realization that if I did not shift what was happening, I could lose the person that I love the most. And I felt it with every cell in my body. And I was like filled with rage, but I had to let it lift off me and fly away because I was looking into his eyes and knew that there was no other choice. I'm not really sure if I have the best answer for how I did it besides that I just had this moment that something shifted in my psyche. And for the first time, I realized I could not fix this. About 12 years ago or so, I was listening. I don't know if you know who Byron Katie is. And I was at an event and she was speaking and somebody had asked her like, oh, do you have a plan for where you're going? And she just said, when it's time to turn right, I turn right. And I remember sitting there going, how do you not have a plan? <laughs> how do you not know what you're going to do? <laughs> of course, like you're just going to turn right. Like that doesn't make any sense because I was the queen of certainty. And what I've come to experience is like, as you were sharing with us about watering the plants, and then you just made this decision. It's like that turning right moment. And it's so weird how the brain works, especially when you're like, I'm an over, you know, I'm a recovering queen of certainty, but <laughs> I can you relate know, you to like that. To plan. <laughs> yeah. You like to plan and control everything because then if you can do that, you know, what's going to happen. But when you, all of a sudden it's like, you get this clearing and it's like, this voice just says, Oh, let it go. Be here now. You can't change this. It's it okay. Was- I would say that it was like that. It was just all of a sudden, I just knew that this is what I needed to do. The interesting thing about it is I had told him this at one point that because of losing my mom many, many years ago to a very traumatic death, I had learned that when you're grieving and you're in your deepest sorrows, one day you have a moment where you have a decision to make. And that decision is to survive or not. And when you make that decision, and I told him, I said, I hope that when you meet that crossroad, you make the right decision. And I was listening almost to my own voice in my head saying, you're at that crossroad. You need to let this go. It's going to kill him. It was almost like I was listening to myself (laughs) talk to him. And I realized that I was having that moment. I was having a moment where I had an absolute choice to make and I needed to make the right choice because life was on the line. And this is where your husband's suicidal and you're not trying to say, okay, I can make it better. I can fix it. Yeah. For the first time, I realized that I couldn't reframe this in any way. He wanted to die. I could see it in his eyes. And it was so heartbreaking and so awful to see that in his eyes that I knew I didn't have a choice. It was just, that was my moment to make the right choice. And so I made the choice to let go of a lot of anger and the need to fix this and control it and just be there with him because he just needed me to be there. And to be in that moment. And when you could be there, and I don't know if you can remember this, do you, can you recall what feelings you had then once you let that anger go? 
I felt incredibly sad. I started to grieve with him, I think. Before that, I was just so driven to fix, 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 and find the right doctor and told everybody I knew, if you're at a dinner party in Japan and you meet a doctor who does this, (laughs) come talk to me. I was just so bent on fixing it that when I realized what I needed to do, I just felt incredibly sad, but I knew it was right. And I was okay being in it. Even if I was up chest deep in it, I was okay because it was real and it was what was actually happening. It wasn't what I was trying to make happen. So this is two years after his diagnosis Mm -hmm. and about how many doctors, different doctors? I would say that we went to five different doctors to talk about it. The interesting thing was four out of the five of them were wrong. And the one who had the worst prognosis was right. And the other four were wrong. So I had gotten second, third, fourth, fifth opinions that I liked better, but they weren't correct. He actually did go blind and he is now 95% blind. So some of the other doctors were saying, oh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Well, that made us feel better, but it wasn't true. So that was another funny thing that happened. We went and looked for all these other opinions and yeah, they were better opinions, but they weren't correct. So it was the initial doctor. It was the very very first first doctor. And one time I asked her, I said, I'm part of me feels like the reason why she gave us the realistic prognosis was because she's a woman. She looked right at me and she said, everything about your life is going to change. And for him, he is experiencing an unbelievable grief, a grief that is on par with losing a child. But that's not what you're experiencing. You're experiencing, you're going to have to change everything about your lives. And I said, but why were you right? And everybody else was wrong. And she said, because I know that you have to have as much time as possible to prepare for this. And I felt like it was some thing that she was telling me from her perspective as a powerful woman who makes change and makes things happen. She was looking at me and saying, you need to make a huge shift. You're going to have to shift and change everything in your life to accommodate this. Get ready. Well, you were business partners. We were. He he needs his eyes to do his work. Yeah. So you also had your own grief of just your grief of your day-to-day existence. I probably did not address that until I was forced to stay home for three and a half months in March. So that took me a long time to realize that I was chasing something that did not exist anymore. And I was trying to recreate what he and I had at work which was totally impossible because he's not there anymore. And that I had to approach our business in a completely different way because when we did it together, it was 120%. And we took care of our kids and we worked. That's what we did. And it was fun and we had a great time with all of it. But then when it was just me, I was trying to make it still feel and look and taste the same. And it was totally different. And 
I now think I have a little bit more realistic view of the future because it doesn't include him coming back someday. Not that I ever really thought that, but I guess there was this little piece in the back of my head that wasn't willing to let go of that possibility. Therefore, I kept everything at work the same way it was when he was there. And so what I realized I had to do was recreate something that worked for my current situation with the current staff, post-COVID, all of these things. It was a good opportunity for me to reinvent and reinvent realistically because I had some time to be with myself and think. There was a surrender of his health and then there was a surrender during COVID of the way you had done business and the way you were choosing to do your work now. Yes. And I was, for the first time in, I think, my entire adult life, I feel driven to do things because they're the right thing to do for me and my family. I have always looked for approval from others and whether or not they thought I was doing something cool or neat or whatever. I wasn't really looking for what was most important for me, for us. And I think that having three months off gave me some time to really think about what was important and made me realize that I miss him tremendously. And that's why I was holding on so tight for so long and trying to keep everything the same was because I missed it. And when I was finally able to look at that, I could say, hey, you know what? I don't want to be at work all the time. I want to be home with you. I like you. I miss you. (laughs) And so going back to work, I was like, I'm not really even want to go back to work. I just want to hang out here with you. But, you know, that's a little unrealistic. So I'm trying to make work work and my home life, my home life. And these things have never been separated before. So this is really interesting. And the biggest reason that they weren't is because we did it together. It was our thing, you know, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's go back to when you surrendered with him wanting to die, right? You surrendered to this is his, these are his eyes. This is his circumstance. So often we're afraid to surrender because we have this fear of, of change. What were your fears? Like, what were your fears at that time of, especially when you heard of the diagnosis of he's going to lose his eyes? What were the fears that you were worried about then? That's really interesting because when I first heard, I think I just went into full on, this is scary, but we're going to fix this because I know how to fix things and I know how to find the right people and I've got great resources, you know? And I didn't feel the pain of it. And I think I was really trying to hold him up as well. But then when I started to really grieve over it was when I realized, I think it was really at that moment when I looked at him and I realized, oh my goodness, he really doesn't want to live. And what that does to, I can't even really explain what that's like to look at the person that you love the most in the world you can see that they absolutely want to die. And it sounds weird, but you almost want them to be able to have that because you don't want them to be in that much pain. And then the overwhelming sadness that that brings to you when you look at this person you love, that you've had so much fun and joy and you know tears and laughter and everything with, and they want to check out, 
It's very lonely. It feels scary. I was just so incredibly sad, probably sadder than I've ever been because I didn't want him to hurt so badly. And I was terrified of losing him. I realized that I want to spend the rest of my life with him. So he can't check out early. (laughs) Start checking out early. And I really got very clear. And I mean, you know, he, I was at dinner with my dad one night. My dad comes to visit me. He lives in Vermont once a year. And we were at dinner and my dad asked me if I had seen this particular movie. And I had this kind of blank look on my face and my dad goes, what's wrong? And I started crying. He said, honey, what's wrong? And I said, dad, Rich said goodbye to me. And he goes, what? And I said, I just realized that Rich gave me a perfect day and said goodbye to me, but then he didn't die. (laughs) So I came home and I said, did you say goodbye to me? And he nodded his head. Yes. And that was terrifying. And I realized that we had really come close and it was super scary. And I was scared for my children. He is an amazing father. He's an amazing husband. He's an amazing person. People love my husband. He's an amazing confidant. He gives people the best advice. He gives me the best advice. He holds me up when I feel weak. He's just an amazing person. And it was so hard to believe that he could be so vulnerable and be so done. And the very interesting thing is, is I don't think he really knew that he wanted to live for about three more years. He got sick with a secondary illness. So he's going blind and that is just a genetic terrible thing that he was born with. The secondary illness is that he has psoriatic arthritis and a horrible autoimmune disease called stills. And when stills onset about three years after that, he almost died. He lost 37 pounds in three weeks. He was having fevers of 106 and then shaking it, you know, rigoring it off. When I hear people talk about COVID, it sounds a lot like what Rich had and people die from it. And he didn't die and he didn't want to. And that was an amazing experience because when his life was actually threatened, by something that he wasn't controlling, he realized that he absolutely had to live. And it was a really powerful experience for him, I think, because I think part of what you're doing, well, when I observe of him, I don't know, I've never been suicidal, but it looked like to me that he was trying to have some kind of control out of over the outcome. And then when a disease comes in and takes everything that you've got and you realize, oh my goodness, maybe I really don't want this. This is kind of scary that I may not make it. I think that's when he really was driven to live and to thrive and survive and get some of his, you know, the goodness of life back. And I think that's when things really shifted for both of us. But there was a lot of years of just sadness and navigating and trying to figure it out. But I knew that 
at the end, we would get there. It was just, we had to go through it however long it took. And sometimes you even have to backtrack, but we still, we were just going through it together. And the wonderful thing about he and I is that magically, for some reason, when I'm down, he's up. And when he's down, I'm up. We hold each other up. And that balance just happened to work out for the duration of this. So we're still here. (laughs) That's an important thing that I want to hit on before I go back and ask this other question is the idea, I mean, partnerships, right? And being part of teams or families is we may all not be up at the same time, but how important it is for one of us to have the strength, the courage, right? The resilience to be able to say, okay, we can keep going forward here's my hand, I'll help you back up. And that's, that's a true partnership. I want to circle back to something you said about when you got the initial diagnosis and you jumped straight, you didn't even feel the fear. You jumped straight into how can we fix this, right? To You went around the feelings and this was kind of your way of being, of doing things of don't go through this feeling. Let's just get to the other side and, and fix the problem, learn the lesson, so on and so forth. When you're in that fix it, we've got to find these other doctors. What were you feeling? Were you more numb? It was like I was doing a project that I was absolutely driven to do. I was just constantly looking for information, reading the internet, finding the experts, talking to clients, asking them who they knew, having them do research. It was this furious race to find the fix. And it's really strange in this day and age, when somebody tells you that what you have can't be fixed, you think that's impossible. I just need to go to another doctor. I mean, it's, you know, whatever year it was, I can't remember 2014. That's not, I'll just find the right doctor. And that was a really big shift to have to go, wait a minute, there's nothing we can do about this. It makes you have to sit in your pain. You can't high step out of it, you know, high knee out of it. You just have to be in it and it hurts and it's sad and you're afraid and all of these things. But one of Rich's friends said to me once, he's really lucky he's married to you. He goes, this ain't your first rodeo. And I said, yeah, that's true. And I do think that previous trauma in my life, surviving my mother's death was huge. And I think it taught me a lot that got me prepared for my situations with my husband. The biggest thing it taught me was that one day you are going to be faced with a choice, a choice to make about what direction you are going to head from this. Are you going to continue to spiral down or are you going to decide to heal and get better? And that stuff comes from the inside. It's not a lightning bolt that hits you from the outside. That all wells up from inside you. And you have to draw on your own strength. And having known that for myself, I knew that he had to do that too. And I just was keeping my fingers crossed when that moment came that he would be able to do that. Now, I wouldn't know anything about that had I not had the previous trauma in my life. So it was almost my experience with really hard things that made it a little bit easier for me and Rich to go through this other hard thing. If this was the first thing, we it would have been incredibly difficult. I had learned a lot from my mom's death. 
did you know, I mean, one of the things is that, you know, the fear of change, right, is our brains just go to, if not this, then something worse. And instead of this idea of like, okay, this sucks. And we're letting go of the way we knew things, but there can be this beauty that we may not even know that exists. I think that we, by nature, both Rich and I are that way. We do try to look for the positive and the growth experience and all these things and what might be possible later. But sometimes that's even a distraction from trying to be in it and go through it. That was a previous coping mechanism of mine where I would just jump over the pain to the end where you were supposed to get the lesson. But then I realized that you can't really get there without going through it. So yeah, I think we did have hope that there was something better at the end and on the other side of the grief. And there is, and there was. And Rich healed beautifully from the blindness and he was completely and totally okay with being blind. He saw a whole new life for himself. He learned to play guitar while he went blind. He did all these amazing things and raised our children through their high school years, being home with them. There were a lot of gifts. And I think that's because of who he is and who we are is that we look for that. But there was a lot of pain to go through before we got there for sure. And a lot of fear and a lot of almost making yourself feel things because you knew it wasn't going to be good to put it off. And when somebody had told us that the trauma was one of the few major traumas in life, kind of equal (laughs) experiences, when, when the doctor said that to me, I knew that he needed all the space he could get. And I was going to give it to him. I was going to give him five years, seven years, whatever he needed, because that is horrendous and it's too hard and he needs all the support and help he can get. And I kind of just decided at that time that, you know, he gets the five to seven year get out of jail free card to figure this out. And he did. How did you go about taking care of yourself at that time? Well, that's a good question. I went to therapy and I had a place where I could talk to somebody just about me and where somebody was there just to support me. That was really important for me because at home I was holding everybody else up. I needed a place where somebody could hold me up and I could be vulnerable. So going to therapy was really important. And I had an amazing therapist here in Davis. And then the other thing was that my kids were at ages where this was quite traumatic for them. And they didn't know what it meant for this stuff to be happening to their superhero dad, who was a triathlete and this amazingly talented artist and all of these things that he now was redefining himself. What was that going to mean for them? And it was traumatic for all of us. So as the mom, in a lot of ways, what made me the healthiest and happiest was knowing that my kids were healthy and happy and keeping them going and trying to make sure that they got what they needed, which oftentimes leaves mom out, but it fueled me in a way that it helped me get through that time period was taking really good care of them. 
and you also had your support as well, right? And that's that's so so important is to be able to take care of others, to be able to have support yourself. So yeah. So for a woman who has spent a lifetime going around and under and not going through the feelings, how was it to be able to go through and feel and be? It was in actually the really, it was easier than I thought. It just is hard to feel pain. And mm-hmm. it's hard to, you want to fix it and get out of it. But this was a kind of a grief and a kind of pain that didn't just involve me. It involved my kids and my husband. And in a way, like I just said before, somehow taking care of them was taking care of me in a lot of ways. What was good for them was good for me. (laughs) And I also needed to show my kids. And I knew this because having trauma earlier in my life that I didn't address at the time and putting it off and putting it off, it's kind of like a pressure cooker. It starts eking out in ways that you don't want. I knew that I needed to deal with the grief around this at this moment. And I needed to help my kids deal with it at the moment. Otherwise, they were going to hold on to it and it was going to eke out in that pressure cooker in undesirable ways later. So I think I was pretty focused on being sad and crying with them and feeling the pain and asking them questions and having them ask me questions. And all of that, I think, helped us process because we are just, we love each other. We're a foursome. We have an incredible little four person unit. And to go through it together, I think was really important. None of us felt alone in it. Well, and I think you're saying some really important things, right? You felt the feelings and you felt the horrible feelings and you felt the fear and you felt the sadness and the grief. But the other thing is, it sounds like there was tremendous love and connection. Amazing love and connection and really knowing what filled my heart to The idea of losing this man was unacceptable. I realized that I was in this for with every cell of my body, (laughs) with every ounce of my soul. I was in this relationship and I loved him so much that, and I loved what we created and our kids love us and they love each other. And it's just, it is really beautiful. I feel like I have an incredible life with these four of us. And I do feel like it's just a tremendous amount of love. And that is appreciation of each other. We appreciate each other because we've almost lost one of us, because we now know that when going through hard things, we can really get through things together and with support. And if you isolate and you're totally by yourself, it's much more difficult. And we really worked hard on that through this entire time period, because I didn't want my kids to not to have unaddressed trauma that they took into their adult lives. I mean, I'm sure we've given them all kinds of other things to be traumatized by, but (laughs) at least this one we tried to work on. (laughs) (laughs) There's always going to be something. Parenting is the toughest gig out there. Oh yeah. I Um, just tell them they can work it out with their therapist someday. (laughs) (laughs) It's all growth. So it sounds like the other thing that you you had was a tremendous amount of courage. It's hard to admit that, right? Because it's hard to say that you're strong and you have courage 
because it's almost like something somebody else observes about you. But when you just said that, I realized just now that, yeah, it took a tremendous amount of courage to get up every day with a new renewed strength to hold everything together. I think I have a lot of practice in my life, but this was definitely a defining trauma in terms of how I dealt with it and how I deal with it today and where it sits in my body is very, very different. I used to have this kind of circulating ring of anxiety around my heart about it. Now it like sits lower in between my stomach and my heart and it's different. It's shifted in a positive way, but it's not a positive feeling. I'm not trying to chase it anymore. It's okay there. It's okay in that spot. It can live there. In one is, this is the Brave Women series that I'm doing and you're the guest. (laughs) So, so, but, but really, I mean, and I think we, you know, I mean, I have my own aversions when I think of bravery. I think of, you know, the movie by with Mel Gibson, Braveheart. I'm like, oh, that's not me, you know, going down, running down a mountain to battle people. But how much courage I've needed through my life to get through my life the courage I needed to fix things, the courage to feel these uncomfortable feelings. It takes so much courage. And so I really want to address it because I want the listeners, there's something inside of there that we may not even know we have, but we need to dial it up so that we can do these hard things that you're talking about. You know, I've always been fascinated by resiliency and the idea of what does it take to be resilient and to be able to be strong and courageous and bounce back and find the courage and the hope to get through the next situation. And I think that there's some part of me that that was just built in because I've had enough things happen in my life that I could just lay in bed with the covers over my head and that would be reasonable, right? (laughs) But for some reason, it motivated me in a different way. And part of it was just wanting to appear like nothing could affect me. So I wouldn't be hurt by things. And I was the strongest, most resilient person in the room. But I also wonder what it is that allows us to move on. And I think it is an inner strength that I can draw something that wells up from my stomach into my chest, into my heart. And that is the strength that I draw on. And I'm not really sure if I learned how to do it in a positive way, or if it was a coping mechanism that became something positive later. And I think it's probably the latter, because I think at first I learned how to be tougher than my situation, right? And I'm going to survive this. And you think this is going to beat me down? Absolutely not. I bounce back. I overcome things. I kick butt and take names, right? Then you have something that, whoa, takes you out at the knees. You still draw from a lot of that experience, even though you weren't processing it well, you know? And it can take a big shift. And I think that there's some kind of internal strength that I have that is simply this ability to see the possibility in things and 
maybe it comes from experience of falling down and getting up and knowing that you can fall down and get up. Or maybe it's something that was built into my psyche. I have no idea. But I do know that even when everything seems impossible, I have hope that there's another way. And that's just part of who I am. One of the things like the research talks about on hope is that hope is a cognitive function. So it's part of our thinking brain mm-hmm. and hope. We, we can become hopeful people by going through life where we fall down and get back up and fall down and get back up. And so you and I have fallen down a lot in our life and we've gotten back up. And, and I agree with you. I think in my survival years, the way I got up was I'm going to power over and I'm going to be tough and, you know, and that's how I was, I was going to armor up and do it. That stopped working after a while because it was really exhausting to do it that way and learning instead of how to, so like I've been thinking a lot of what fuels my courage so I can be courageous and do the work that I do or whatever it is that, you know, have hard conversations, whatever it is, invite people places, whatever it may be. How do, what do I need to do to fill that courage? And what fun, what, what fuels me? You know, how do I need to play? What does play look like? Especially because it was always about working so hard, you know? And so for me, it's, it's love, it's connection, right? Connecting with people. It's also doing silly stuff like watching Marvel movies, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's, there's no point or doing a puzzle and even a big puzzle. Like I just recently, about a month ago, somebody sent me this big piece of puzzle and it was so simple and I did it in 30 minutes and I was so ecstatic about it because it wasn't this really difficult thousand piece puzzle, right? But what are the different ways to have fun? And so I guess my question for you is, you know, we talked about your family and the connection and your kids and how important it was to nurture them and take care of them. And as you move through it and, you know, allow all the feels. And now that you're seven years down the road from the initial diagnosis, what do you do to fill yourself up so you can be courageous? I think I draw on experience and my experience has always been that once I start calling something what it actually is, instead of like making up a story around it or trying to make it better by reframing it or skipping to the end instead of feeling my feelings, and I actually recognize what I've been through, I draw from that experience of the past of saying, hey, that actually made me feel better. I'm going to look forward to that. And that's where I start building the courage is looking forward to the experience of feeling better. And I know that it's on the other side somewhere and I, it's going to take a while to get there, but I think it's just knowing that there is a time when it changes just from experience that gives me the courage to look forward to that time. I think it also gives me the courage to feel pain and to just be in things Instead of, you know, because I do know that there's an end at some point. I've been through hard things before. I know that there's an end and that there's, and you may dip back, but moving forward, time and space definitely changes things. And you usually feel better over time. And also, you know, the need to 
be able to go to work and make money and have fun there and talk to people and have fun with my kids and give my kids life lessons and all of that stuff is, you know, that's, that's all part of what encourages me to keep going. I kind of like the human experience. Like I like thinking about it. I like what I experience, even the hard things I've learned to like, because, you know, you can't, it sounds so cliche, but you can't appreciate the beauty of the sunset unless you've weathered the storm, right? It really is true. I mean, but when you've been through hard things, you know that things get better and you can draw from that to get courage to get there. I think you said something that's really important is, and going back to like this idea of surrendering, like when you know that, okay, this all sucks right now. It's not that I'm going to live in the suck of it forever. Yeah. And that's, I think, such an important thing because I know so many people are afraid and, you know, oftentimes my clients will be afraid to feel the pain, feel the painful feelings because they're like, I'm going to be in that rabbit hole for the rest of my life. And I think it's hard for people to believe sometimes when this is maybe the first really hard experience they've had, or you're talking to a teenager who thinks that this is the end of the world, some thing that's happened and it feels devastating. But being almost 50 now, I know that just with experience, that's not true. And it does make it easier to be in it when it's happening and know that it's going to end. It's going to change at some point. That's really what helps me through most things is that nothing is permanent. Everything's changing. And I have choices. I have real choices in how I feel, how I approach things, and where I compartmentalize them. And sometimes that helps too, just having that knowledge. Stacia, I want to thank you for coming and being so vulnerable and sharing your story and your husband's story and your journey, because I think there's so many nuggets for people to realize and even to get the courage to feel and the courage to go on and to, you know... (laughs) I really appreciate you asking these questions. It was really interesting to think about all this again (laughs) and how neat and beautiful of a life I have. Life is complex, right? Mm -hmm. And especially in a crazy time like this, it's pretty neat that we can survive things, right? It, well, we we really can. I mean, one of the things that I thought a lot about during COVID, especially when we were first in shelter in place, was not and not that I experienced this, but I th- I think a lot about the German concentration camps, right? And that humans have gone through some really horrific things. And so I thought, okay, so I'm at home, and I have food, and I have electricity, and thank goodness we have Wi-Fi. Yes, there's been tremendous loss, but I do believe we're going to be on the other side of this because we're resilient as a species. And while there are days that I didn't feel very resilient, but we're resilient as a species. And so that allowed me to have hope to get through the other side of this. And we're still, I mean, we're still in the middle of it. Right. But again, stories like yours, where we hear about how life makes a change that you weren't expecting, or that wasn't the vision you had and that you can be okay on the other side of it. So thank you. Thank you. Wow. Her story is pretty incredible, isn't it? Getting a life changing diagnosis that affects not only your home life, but also your work life. And one of the things that 
I have to always remind myself is that we are resilient. We can figure it out. And I also give myself permission to cry and to be upset and to feel all the feelings and also to laugh and to enjoy the small things. And the one thing I didn't get a chance to ask her, and and I would imagine that even in those days of fear and uncertainty, there'd be moments of laughter. And that's so important is that when, even when we're in the deep struggle, we want to feel those feelings. And then when there is that more positive feeling that we also embrace that too, we're going to feel all the feelings. So what do we do when the happily ever after doesn't exist, right? And when she was talking about it and even talking about the initial doctor's diagnosis, my brain automatically goes to, but no, we're going to live happily ever after. Too many fairy tales on my part. (laughs) Even when I read books, I'm like, okay, and the way that I want it to end. But there isn't the happily ever after sometimes that we were planned out. And there is that surrendering of letting go of what we thought and then experiencing what is. And what I know from my own experience is oftentimes the thing I'm really afraid of happening and the reason I don't want to let go is because I'm afraid of the tragedy, the dress rehearsing tragedy, the worst case scenario happening. And what actually happens is there's beauty on the other side. And when she talked about the connection that our family has, the love that they have, the acceptance that they have with each other, there's so much beauty in that and the resilience. Not that we need to go looking for hard things, because trust me, my friends, <laughs> there's plenty of hard in life. So we don't need to go looking for it. But when we have it, I really invite you to embrace the feeling feel it. And this is really important. And I talk a lot about it on the show. Stacia talked about it today. Do it with others. We're not meant to go it alone. Remember one of the things that she said was there were times that she would prop her husband up and there've been times that he's propping her up, right? That verbiage I use is if you've fallen down, my hand is coming to help you back up, right? So whether it's propping up, reaching and helping you lift. It's holding hands and we're going to walk through this together. We're going to hug each other and support each other. We're going to be afraid together, but we're going to get through it together. So you're not weak by needing others. We are made to be with others. And remember that you're not supposed to go it alone. And the other thing was they had the fears and they also had love and connection and outside support. And those are so important. So when we do hard things and we can be courageous, it's also about filling yourself up, filling yourself up. And again, what do you fill yourself up with? What allows you to be courageous? What allows you to face the fears? How are you taking care of yourself so that you can rise again and you can support those you love and care about and they can support you. And that's something that's really important. It's about receiving the help too. So my friend, I hope you got some nuggets of insights and you can add this and apply it to your life. Until next time, I'm smiling big for you. Do you need to recover from 2020? (laughs) Don't worry, my friend, you're not the only one. I get it. You're depleted. 
you've hit emotional bottom because it can't get any worse, right? Money worries, career uncertainty, wanting to change career, family conflict, mental distress, loneliness, and isolation. These are many of the things that people have been experiencing in 2020. And you're exhausted and making the smallest decisions is setting you off. You're stuck in a cycle of anxiety and second guessing and doubt. It's becoming a downward spiral and you're starting to wonder, are you ever going to feel confident? Listen, 2021 does not need to be a repeat of 2020. You can experience enormous positive change even while living and working in a pandemic. So many of my clients have been able to do that this year. You can get clear on what you need and want, even when faced with uncertainty. You can grow emotionally, even when you're stuck at home. The hardest times in our lives can often be the most fruitful times to grow and change. You deserve a good year. You, my friend, deserve a win. You deserve clarity and confidence. So what are you going to do about it? I have just the thing for you. I have my how to feel grounded confidence course and it's four weeks to mindset management and emotional intelligence. And this is the place where you can gain emotional intelligence so you can understand your feelings and why you do what you do. Yes, the good and the bad, the ways we support ourselves and the ways we sabotage. So you can become aware of your thinking so you can make decisions with clarity and alignment with your values, not other people's values or what the popular opinion may be. In this course, you're going to learn how to manage your mindset so you can avoid the scary stories your mind is feeding you constantly. And you're going to start seeing many more opportunities and solutions along with the issues. And finally, you will feel confident that you can tackle and handle and have the resilience to whatever 2021 throws at you, and you can still move forward and deliberately create the life that you are craving. You ready for more? Let's have a fantastic 2021 filled with resilience and the ability to maneuver and go through these things and to feel confident again. There's a link in the show notes to find out more and to sign up. I'll see you there. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.